You're listening to an audio message from Palm Vista Community Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit palmvista.org. All right, thank you, Al. Well, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. As we continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be covering Matthew 6, verses 19 through 34 this morning. And the title of today's message is Wisdom, Worry, and Wealth. In church, I come with a, a burden this morning. It's about something which I venture to say affects each and every one of you here in a variety of different ways. And it's something with our, in which our passage this morning has a lot to say. I'm speaking about anxiety. I'm speaking about worry. I want to lead off with a quote this morning from Robert D. Jones in his excellent article, Getting to the Heart of Your Worry. Let's put it up on the screen as I read it. See if you can identify. Perhaps no single problem plagues people more than worry or anxiety. It may arise suddenly. It may accompany you daily. It saps your sleep, drains your joy, exhausts your energy, ruins your relationships, and aggravates your body ailments. For some people, worry is chronic and crippling. For all of us, worry is one of the most typical everyday Sins. We worry, don't we? We worry about finances. We worry about our job. We worry about our health. We worry about our children. We even worry about what to wear. We worry about all types of things. You name it, and we can worry about it. But to get back to Robert Jones's quote, Worry is one of the most, quote, typical everyday sins. So much so that we can worry and not even know we're worrying. Or even realize that it's a sin. My venture to say that the command, do not be anxious, which you'll find three times in our text this morning, is perhaps the most neglected command in the Bible. Do not be anxious. I think that worry is one of the most acceptable sins because it is so typical. It is so common to each and every one of us. But to say that it is common, to say that it's typical, does not mean that God tolerates worry. Why? Because flourishing And worrying are incompatible, church. Living a wholehearted, righteous life and having anxiety do not and cannot go together. They are incompatible. You see, today's teaching is very much in line with our Sermon on the Mount. If you've been with us for the last several weeks. In this sermon and in this text, by way of contrast and choices, we once again get a portrait of a disciple of Christ. A portrait of one 
who flourishes, a portrait of one who makes wise decisions and choices and who does not worry. I believe all that we're about to read can be summed up this way. We'll put it on the screen for you. Don't worry. Be wise. Oh, church. Oh, follower of Christ. Don't worry. Be wise. With that in mind, let's read our text starting with chapter 6 and verse 19 and following. We read. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, as your people, we are asking for wisdom. We know that wisdom is a virtue. It is a character quality. It's also a gift from you. And we're here to say that we need it. Father, we are prone to worry. We are frail human beings who often grow anxious. Lord, give us your eyes to see. Give us your perspective. Give us your heart. And may we not worry, but trust in you and our Savior, we pray. Amen. 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 Well, point number one, wisdom is a choice. This passage you just read, you see, it's much more than a command simply to stop worrying. Although we just read about anxiety, see that last portion we read, verses 25 to 34? 
It's preceded by verses 19 to 24. And that's where we want to start this morning. You see, you see, it's not enough to say, don't worry, be happy. I mean, fun song, but sure, it's really not that helpful. If we're not to worry, we got to do something. We need to cultivate something. And it's called wisdom. We must learn to invest wisely. I want to put up a quote from Randy Alcorn. He says this, In a world gone wrong, unless the right choice is deliberately made and tenaciously clung to, the wrong choice will be implemented. In that case, as if on automatic pilot, people will inevitably spend their lives investing in the wrong treasury. Making a deliberate, continual choice, there's virtue, to invest your time, energy, and affection, and your money, church, is wisdom. And it takes seeing clearly. Thus, Jesus says in verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. But verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So what are the two investment choices? I hope it's clear. We can invest in treasures on earth or it's one or the other or invest in treasures in heaven. But that begs the question, doesn't it? As I read that, maybe you have a similar question. Well, what exactly does it mean to invest in the treasures on earth? I think most plainly, even as we read in our text this morning, these treasures on earth speak of material possessions and money. But that begs another question, doesn't it? What are you saying? Not to invest in those things? Can't, Can't we purchase things? Can't we, like, own a home? How about savings accounts? I don't believe we're talking about that, church. To say you could not do that would contradict much of the Bible, all right? No, what I believe Jesus is speaking about here is this. It's setting your heart on the security and the pleasure that money can buy. Let me say it again. This is important. We're talking here about setting your heart on security and pleasure of what money can buy. That's what I believe Jesus is talking about when he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. You know the thought process. Oh, if only I had, you fill in the blank, that newer car, that latest technology, or that bigger savings account. Oh, then, right? Then I could do this or that. Or then I wouldn't have these problems that I'm facing. Then, and only then, would I be all set. I wouldn't have to worry as much. You see, that argumentation, that reasoning, it kind of sounds wise, doesn't it? It certainly does sound reasonable. But you know what? It also sounds a lot like a man that we read about in Scripture from Luke chapter 12. It's a parable that Jesus told. Going down to Luke 12, starting with verse 18, we read the following. And he, that is this man in the parable, excuse me, said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. When you hear that, think, ah, 
I finally will have security. And relax, eat, drink, and be merry, and I will have pleasure. But God said to him, fool, ouch. The point is not that we can't have big barns or bigger houses. The point is that you are a fool if you think, and I think, we think that we can buy our own security and pleasure by investing in treasures or bigger barns here on earth. Why? There's no mystery here. Jesus spells it out. Because moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. That's to say nothing about hurricanes. (laughs) In other words, you will not be able to keep those treasures yourself. That security that you thought you had, it's fleeting. It's temporal at best. Furthermore, you will always try, be trying to protect those treasures from loss, from destruction, from decay, from deterioration, from thievery. And yes, you'll be, be worrying about that as well. The answer that Christ gives is to lay up treasures in heaven that will never, ever suffer loss. That will be kept for you for all eternity. So what are those treasures? <laughs> you want them? I want them. What is he referring to? Well, I think we have a good clue if we look at chapter 6, the context that is of Matthew 6, and what Jesus said earlier, he said this. Jesus had just finished saying and talking about giving in secret, praying in secret, and fasting in secret. And after each one of those admonitions, he ends with these very curious words. He says it three times, three times. He says this, and your father God, that is, who sees in secret will reward you. Church, those treasures in heaven that we are to live for are nothing less than the reward of praise, honor, and glory that God gives to those who seek him with a whole heart. Righteousness. Oh, you can have your reward now. In the fleeting applause and admiration of men. And by the way, men, I mean all people, they love big barns. They love parties. Or you can get it from God in heaven for all eternity by his grace. A church, don't miss the point. God isn't against savings. He's not against investment. He's just opposed to bad investment. See, notice what God is saying. He's not saying lay up treasures for yourself in heaven so you can be and look super spiritual and deny yourself all these earthly pleasures. No. He's saying lay up treasures for yourself. For to do anything else, it's just plain stupid. Why live for that which you cannot keep? See, the virtue here is not poverty. The virtue here is wisdom. 
Verse 21, for what your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is a matter of your very heart. It's only those whose heart are fully God's and not attached to the things of the world. It's only they who will flourish and not worry. So you can't live for earthly treasures on the weekday and then think, well, I'll make a little spiritual investment on the weekend, on Sundays. Church, it doesn't work that way. It's one or the other. I don't want you to leave this auditorium without making that decision. Because if you don't make it, it's one or the other. You've already made it, as Randy Alcorn mentioned in his quote earlier. It's one or the other. That leads to the next point. Wisdom is wholehearted or singularly focused. I want to read 22 and 24 and explain these verses. They're often not understood. They're a little tricky. I, I get it. But I want you to understand these are important verses. For the eye is a lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body would be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What is he talking about here? Well, the eye, I believe, which Jesus is speaking of, is really functioning in these verses as a window. As a window into the heart of a person. See the eye in verse 22? It's described how? As being healthy. That word healthy, really, the idea behind that is singularity. It's an eye that is singly focused. It's an eye that is whole. It's whole. That's a theme of the Sermon on the Mount. It is not divided. It is not double vision. In other words, the singularly focused or healthy person is focused on God and his heavenly reward. And thus, he or she has a heart that is free of envy, that is free of greed, a heart that is generous and full of light. All this is in contrast to verse 23, right? Which we hear of this bad eye. This speaks of a greedy and a stingy heart. It speaks of a person who is double-minded. Let me give you an example to bring this into focus, part of the pun. You see something that you really want. Oh, you really want it. But here's the problem. You can't afford it. The person with the good eye, he or she acknowledges, yeah, I really want that. Maybe it's that... 200-inch screen TV for your man cave. I don't even know how big they are these days. I mean, you, you fill in the blank, right? Maybe it's, that, maybe it's that piece of fashionable clothing. Maybe it's that fancy kitchenware, cookingware, or appliance. We all have our weaknesses, right? The person with the good eye says, man, I want that. But you know what? I trust God. If it is a need... If God wants me to have it, you know what? He is going to provide it. God, I trust you. That's a whole heart. That's a singularly focused eye upon God and trust in him. But the one with the bad eye says, yeah, yeah, I too really want that. I really want it. I can't afford it, but I really want it. You know what? I'm going to buy it. I'm going to buy it. 
whatever it is. You know, I'm going to buy it, right? I'm... You know what? Reset. That, that's not quite accurate enough. The person with the bad eye says, yeah, I really want that. You know what? I'm going to take out a loan with 30% interest that I cannot pay back. And I'm going to, quote unquote, buy it. So they buy it. And the payment comes due. A payment which you and I know they cannot and will not pay. That's just a single purchase. That's a pattern. It's a way of thinking. The payment comes due. And you can't pay it. Greed has put the person with the bad eye in this very position. Now, if you have a bad eye, you're not, you're not going to call it greed, right? I mean, you're going to find some reason to justify that purchase. But let's be honest. It was greed. Greed put you there. But now stinginess enters as well. You want to give. You want to give to the church. You want to give and support those missionaries. You want to support that very good cause. But you know what? You feel like you can't. Why? Because you have a mounting credit card debt to pay off. You say you want to worship God. I want to worship God with my giving and my affection. But you're also focused, double focused on your debt. Or you're just bent on trying to ignore it. And you're double focused. And you know what? That debt, those possessions have become a weight to you. They've become a worry to you. And it doesn't go away. In fact, it has become your master. Enter verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Friend, if you're here this morning, and money... And possessions have become your master. That is, if you have crippling debt or runaway spending habits, I do want to say there is hope. And there is hope for change. There is hope because God is gracious. He's gracious to forgive you. But not just that. He's also gracious to help you to get out of the debt that you're in because of your foolish choices. But I want to say something else as well. That may mean, first of all, confessing your sin, calling it for what it is. Use biblical language, greed, idolatry, covetousness. And it may mean as well embracing the very hard work of making wise choices in the future. The pathway of repentance will probably also include getting help from others in this area of poor financial decisions and management. It may mean taking a financial peace course, which we've offered here at Palm Vista. We're going to have another one again. Seriously considering, I need this and I need others. It might mean talking to Marcos Gonzalez who leads it. Even today, I'd be happy to talk to you as well because you need help. We need others to help us make those wise, but yet often difficult choices. We need help 
in steering the heart in the direction that we want it to go. Now, I know there are many people here. You are trusting God. There's a number of you. You're working hard to get out of debt. And you're giving generously. But you know what? We're all human. We're weak. And we're tempted. Who hasn't had this thought? Well, if I don't lay up some treasures here on earth. Say, if I don't put it on the card, the credit card. And I really start laying up treasures in heaven. Say, I really start giving. I won't have anything. I'll be in need. And aren't I called to provide for my family? What are you saying? Well, friends, here's the beauty of this passage. Jesus has already anticipated your concern and your response and even your objection. It's found in verses 25 through 34. I hope you have that context. You see, wisdom doesn't worry. Verse 25, therefore, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? See, Jesus is not dissing this need. You understand he's talking to people in this original context who are from an agrarian society, agricultural society. They knew what it was like to need their daily bread. You understand they couldn't go to Costco and get a pallet of bread for the week or month, okay? And when they say clothing, he's not talking about fashion choices. I need to update my wardrobe. How am I going to do that? No, they needed clothing just to stay warm in the winter months. These were necessities. These were not peripheral matters. But he's saying, your father in heaven knows. And you can trust him. Jesus is wanting in this passage to bolster our trust and provision. And to do so, number one, he directs our attention to look at God's creation. Fascinating. Verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Guess what barns? Where did reference barns early? I don't think that's a mere coincidence that Jesus uses the word barn here. Let me go back. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? That's a rhetorical question. Yes, you are. God will certainly provide. I just, love, I just love him tucking in verse 27 as well. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? I suggest from experience that worry actually takes or subtracts a few hours, if not years, from your life in mental and physical health. But Jesus isn't done yet. He adds some rhetorical weight now to his argument. Verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. They're not worried. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, the richest king in history in all his glory, was not arrayed. He was not clothed like one of these. He's speaking of wildflowers. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow was thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you 
of little faith. If God beautifully clothes the grass of the, those wildflowers, which are only temporary, alive today and gone the next, oh, certainly God will clothe you who are of greater worth to him. You see, worry is not just a lack of wisdom. It's also a lack of faith. Verse 30. O you of little faith. You realize that Jesus, oh, he is gracious, but he's not very sympathetic to your worrying. He calls it for what it is, unbelief. Unbelief is serious business to God. See, this isn't a passage just containing a few nice tips in how to live the stress-free life. This teaching is ultimately about your heart and the state of your very soul. And I think that point is driven home in verses 31 and 32. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Look at verse 32. For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. He's referencing Gentiles in this context. He's speaking of those who do not know God as Heavenly Father. It's those who seek after all those material goods and they're worried. They're so worried and they are consumed with laying up treasures on earth for their own welfare and security. And Jesus is calling his disciples to live differently. He is calling each and every one of us to trust in our heavenly father and in doing so show that we belong to him. What's he saying here? He said, this is a relationship issue. This is a trust issue. If there is no trust, there is no relationship. You are living like an unbeliever, like a Gentile who does not know their heavenly father. But he's saying not so. For my disciples, not so. And Jesus is calling us to trust in him and to look to our heavenly father to provide all that we need. And that leads to the next point. Look to your heavenly father. Why? Catch verse 32. Look at it. Because your heavenly father, oh, he knows. Oh, he knows what you need. But it goes further. You might recall from the previous sermon. Verse 8 of chapter 6. Not only does God know what you need, he knows before you even ask. Think about that. Friends, what a comfort. This ought to bring us. You don't have one single need this morning that God does not already know about. And to say that he already knows that need is to say this, that he has already provided for that very need. Church, we can pray for our daily bread last week. Oh, and we can pray it with absolute confidence in our heavenly father. And this confidence is rooted not only in creation and those observations brought forth, but it's rooted in the cross of Christ 
We cannot look to our heavenly father without looking to what he has done in sending his son to earth to die as our sin bearer in our place. We must ask ourselves regularly. We may have to ask ourselves daily church. This question posed in Romans eight thirty two. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also graciously give us all things? He, our heavenly father, who did not spare his only son, but gave him up on a cross to meet the greatest need that we ever will have, forgiveness and reconciliation with our father. He gave him up for that. Will he actually spare what you need for life and godliness? No, he won't. And he hasn't. Church, your heavenly father will provide. He will give you all that you need. Romans 8.32 is the exclamation point. And verse 33 in our text of Matthew 6 is a climactic conclusion that derives the point home. Let me read it. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow would be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. To seek first God's kingdom and righteousness means that our heart, our focus, and our energy is first and foremost Set on pleasing God. It's not that we don't plan for tomorrow, but it means that we do not worry about tomorrow, knowing that our King will provide all that we need as we live for Him. Do you see what He's doing here? Seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness frees us. It frees us to live for God in the now, where our Heavenly Father will meet us and daily provide for our needs. And it frees us for something else as well. It frees us to live, excuse me, it frees us from living in an imagined future. Or as the way as my professor Jonathan Pennington said, it frees us from living in an imagined and dreaded future of need. I'm talking about how often our, our minds go to the future and the needs that arise that we can anticipate in the future and we worry and we dread seeking first king of God frees us from importing a future of worry into today. But it's a constant fight, isn't it? It's a fight that many of us face. It's a fight that I really fought this week. I mean, I looked at my week. I said, I can't figure it out. How is God going to provide the energy, the strength, and the time, and the finances. I don't see God's daily bread for tomorrow. So I worry. Well, of course you can't see God's daily bread for tomorrow. It's not there yet because tomorrow is not today. 
It's so obvious, but it has to be said, doesn't it? I, I got to hear that again and again. So I asked myself, you know, will I have enough money? I'm not, I, this week, I'm asking myself this question. Will I have enough money to fix and remodel our kitchen? And if so, will we have enough money for the kids' braces? In my mind, went to the Palm Vista Ministry Center that we want to acquire. Will we get it in time for this event? Will we get it in time before our current office lease runs out? And the list just goes on and on and on, if I let it. See, church, those are not unimportant questions. It's just that they are not the foremost question to be asked. See, the foremost question to be asked is not, how is God going to provide for my future needs? No, the question is this. How am I going to live for God today in his daily provision and grace? That's the question we ought to be asking. What's the difference between the two? Oh, it's huge. The difference is between a life of worship and a life of worry. The difference is a difference between a life of flourishing and a life of worrying. Do you see it? The message today's passage is simply this. Don't worry, be wise. It's about cultivating wisdom. It's about looking to Jesus for our daily provision on earth, as well as our eternal reward in heaven. It's really another way of saying what we learned several weeks ago, way back in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter five, verse six, where Christ taught this blessed that is flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And here's the promise for they shall be satisfied. How will they be satisfied? They will know God's provision and peace and they will not worry church. May this be you. And may it be me. It can be. All by God's grace. I'd like the worship team to come up as we conclude here. And sing that final song, How Rich a Treasure We Possess. With that, let me pray as we prepare our hearts to conclude in worship. To exclaim in worship. The very truths that we have just learned about. Let us pray. Dear Lord, that we do confess, it is often so hard to treasure that which we cannot see. Our hearts so quickly can gravitate to earthly things and wants that we call needs. Lord, show us, help us to treasure you, to treasure the gospel which we have been given, to treasure Christ our Savior. May He be the treasure of our hearts. May He be the focus of our life, the object of our worship, of our adoration, and out of our giving. Lord, set our eyes upward. Set our eyes heavenward. Set our eyes upon Christ that we may treasure that whom You have given to us, our Savior. So, Lord, I pray you do that now. Lord, we're asking, lift our eyes, fill our hearts.
we want good eyes. We want whole hearts set upon you and to worship you now. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to find out more resources or see how you can donate to this ministry, simply visit palmvista.org. And be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with upcoming teachings. 